People talk a lot about revival in the church. They'll say things like, we need a revival, or we want a revival. But what exactly is a revival? Is it an outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Is it several services that happen maybe over a course of a week or a month or even a year? Is it a powerful moment in worship? What is revival? I stumbled across this definition of revival, and it said that revival is the sovereign activity of God whereby he renews his people individually and corporately in vigor, affecting both sincerity of belief and quality of behavior. Charles Finney said that a revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. Another story I came across, a man named Gypsy Smith, he was an English evangelist, and someone asked him how to have revival, and so he responded with the question, he said, do you have a place where you can pray? And they said, yes. So he said, tell you what to do. You go to that place and take a piece of chalk along, kneel down there, and with the chalk, draw a complete circle all around you, and pray for God to send revival on everything inside of the circle. Stay there until he answers, and you will have revival. I thought that was a pretty powerful statement. Now, if I tried that, I'd probably have a bunch of chalk drawings, you know, going on the floor somewhere with my kids. Another person I was listening to, one of my favorite speakers, they quoted a guy named Duncan Campbell, and he said that revival is a community saturated with God. So how can we be sure that we're experiencing revival by doing everything that we can to prepare our hearts for it. Now, I want to be very clear on something this morning before I begin this message that I don't have all the answers when it comes to revival. In fact, when I began studying this topic, I realized that it was going to take more messages than just one, especially to do it justice. But it's easy to talk about revival and then assume that it isn't happening here, or maybe it's not happening there, or maybe another church. Somebody could say, well, it's not happening at my church or their church. People can go from church to church seeking what they call revival. Churches are even judged in some circles by how much of revival they are experiencing. But what is revival? When we talk about revival, my definition this morning is that we are simply asking God for more of Him, both corporately and individually. Some of us in this room, we're we're experiencing revival in some form, individually. We've had moments with God where we, we will not forget those moments. Some of our students experienced moments with God this past weekend, and those are moments, I believe, of personal revival where God meets you where you're at. Some of you, when I talk about revival, you may think, I've never experienced revival. I don't even know really what revival is all about. I'm not even quite sure what it means and then some of us, we want revival more than anything in our life. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and we were just discussing this topic of revival, and a statement was made, and it was this, that revival is planned. Now, if I say that, there will be some that would be like, wait a second, that doesn't make a lot of sense. That sounds kind of controversial, or it doesn't make sense. How could revival be planned? But as I began thinking about that statement, I started thinking that, you know, this statement may be more truer than I think. Because it's easy to sit around for months and months waiting for God to bring revival, but in reality, God is waiting for us to prepare 
and plan for the revival. He's waiting for us to put things in place in our life so that we as a congregation can start a revival in our homes, in our families, in our schools, at our job, in our communities. And I believe that God could bring revival to social media. How many believe that that could happen? We need that. Maybe that's just a pull the plug thing or something. I don't know. But he's waiting for us to make changes in our lives that actually show we are willing to receive all that he has for us. So when we say revival is near, it means that we are planning it, we are seeking it, and we are preparing for it. In the first week of our series, we, we did something. We, all of us came up here to the altar, and we just came and cried. We just cried. We asked God, God, I want to cry because there's things in my life i got to get rid of. And so we just came here. Some of us are standing. Some of us were standing even over there, and we said, God, I just need you to give me a burden. Just give me a burden for people. And then some of us, we just cried because we wanted to experience the presence of God in our life. And then the second week, our big thing was to focus on strengthening our families. And so we kind of made a commitment, even just from where we were at in our seat. God, I want a commitment to strengthen the walls of my family, to strengthen the walls of my spiritual life. And we said that, you know, when we do this, discouragement, opposition is going to come. That's going to happen no matter what. But because we're strengthening our walls, we're going to get through those storms. We're not going to be like James puts it in chapter 1, verse 6. But when you ask and be sure that your faith is in God alone, do not waver. A person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. But as a follower of Jesus, we have a hope that is greater than any discouragement, greater than any opposition that we could ever face here on earth. And our beliefs aren't going to be constantly changing based off of what someone tells us or based off of what the culture tells us. No, we're going to be solid in our faith. Because we're looking forward to the day when we are with Him in eternity and we're seeing His glory revealed for eternity. And But we know that there's also there's a hell. And we also have to know that we have to get our lives right with God or we're not going to be with Him in eternity. So how do we prepare for it as a church? From the book of Nehemiah, I've pulled five things that can either begin a revival in our lives or can help us to sustain what we already have going on. And it all has to do with God's Word. We remember in the first chapter that Nehemiah, he was praying and fasting. And those are two ways, obviously, that we can prepare, we can plan, we can ask God to bring a revival in our life and in our congregation. In Nehemiah chapter 1, 3, and 4, he was saying, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. Remember, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So what did he do? When he heard these things, he sat down and wept for some days. I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So we know that revival can begin with prayer and fasting. And, and those are topics all on their own. And we could cover those at another day. But we also have another weapon. How many of you know that we have a tool right in front of us that's the Word of God? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the Word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before His eyes. And He is the one whom we are accountable. So we see in the book of Nehemiah, the first thing is that God's Word needs to be preached, explained, and understood. When we go to Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, it says that all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. 
They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men. Women and others who could understand, all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So I'm planning on kind of just doing that today. We're just going to stand and we're going to stay here for a while, read the scriptures. And Is that okay? No, I'm kidding. I won't go that extreme. But Nehemiah chapter 8, dropping down to verse number 5, said, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So what happens next in the next two chapters of Nehemiah is a work of incredible reformation and revival, and it all begins with simply hearing the word of God. God steps into this situation in the course of several days and brings about this incredible renewal of, of worship, enthusiastic worship among the people, and they begin to consecrate themselves to God in obedience. And this was something that hadn't happened in probably several hundred years in Jerusalem. There were people that longed for this to happen, for something like this to take place, and they were waiting for it, waiting for them to go back to their roots. And Nehemiah was the one to kind of attempt to restore biblical worship in a city that had been very weak in this area. His mission was not only to rebuild the physical walls, but he wanted to rebuild their spiritual walls. But there was a man who had been doing some work, some groundwork prior to that for about 13 or 14 years, and he had his own preaching ministry of his own. And he was one of those that had been planting seeds even in the midst of a dark period of Jewish history, and he was committed to the cause of instilling religious values that he held dear. And I just want to take a moment here to encourage some of you. Some of, some of you might teach a class that just has a few. Some might listen to this, and maybe they've been witnessing to someone as just one person. And it's been a period of time, a long period of time. And it might seem like sometimes it's like, is this doing any good? Remember that God's word does not return void. I wonder if Ezra had any moments of discouragement during those 13 years of him preparing and preaching to the people of Israel. I can guarantee he did. But his faithfulness was about to pay off. And Nehemiah was going to call one of the biggest Bible studies of all time. Some people have suggested that there's maybe a crowd of thirty to 50,000 people here. I don't know how they did the sound. That's crazy. But I don't have time to cover the specifics of this study, but it was an intense one, and it lasted for days because we'd be here for the whole week if we tried to copy this. So whose idea was this in the first place? Well, some of it stemmed from some things that would happen in the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Trumpets, which was the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles. And they were supposed to assemble there, just like the book of Leviticus told them to in chapter 23. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blast. If anybody had forgotten what they were supposed to do, Ezra would not have forgotten this. He was, he was on top of it. He was faithful. He knew what the Jewish calendar had. So after the wall was built... People left the city for a while. They went back to their homes, and they all came back for this big event with Nehemiah that Nehemiah was planning. Now, I don't know if 
Nehemiah knew that this was going to line up with the Jewish calendar, if he was planning for it. I don't know if he made flyers and postcards and passed out and got the word out. I don't know what he did, but one big huge event was about to happen, and who better not to lead it than guest speaker Ezra. This guy knew the scriptures, and he was the most qualified for this moment to teach the people of Israel. And the cool thing about this story is that Nehemiah, being the leader that he was, he, he was in the spotlight. He steps out of it for this moment. Warren Wearsby says that the material needs of the city had been met. Now it was time to focus on the spiritual needs. So in chapter 8, verse 7, it said the Levites and a whole host of other people instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. See, the scriptures were written in Hebrew, and the Jews had already adopted the language of the culture that had taken over, which was Aramaic. You know, most of us, we have multiple copies of, of God's word. We have Bibles laying in, in different parts of the, the house. We have our Bible that we can pull out on our phone and read different versions of the Bible. We, I mean, it's, it's, it's at our fingertips. It's so easily accessible. But for the people of Israel, they couldn't just grab a scroll, go from one scroll to the next. So having somebody read the scripture to the people and then explain it to them was essential because there was this language barrier as well. Having someone translate was, was crucial. Speaking of translating, I have a ton of funny stories about translating from, from Spanish to English, English to Spanish. It, it's, yeah, they're kind of embarrassing. But I'll tell you one of them. So this isn't horrible, though. I'm not going to pick the worst one. So. But we went to a missions trip in Argentina, and this was from People's Churches several years back, and some of you in this room were on that trip. And uh, my brother would translate different nights and for some of the people, and then I would translate for, like, the other half of the team. So one night, Fawn was there, and we weren't married at the time. I knew that, you know, that date was approaching, and I was probably going to ask her at some point. But for that time being, we were just dating. So I had to introduce her, but I had not thought this through very well. And I, I got up there, and I was thinking, there's, you know, I was just going to say, this is my girlfriend. But there's a different word in Spanish that is, it's novia. And in my mind, at that particular moment, I felt like that meant, like, engaged. You know, and I didn't want to let the secret out just yet. And I could not think of another word. I don't think there is another word. And so I was like, oh, what am I going to do? And so I just, I introduced her as my novia, and the whole crowd goes, aww. It's just like, and she kind of looks at me kind of a little different, but, you know, because why did they react like that if I was just introducing her? But anyway, she gives her testimony. We, we go down, and then she's like, why did everybody react like that? And I was like, well, they pretty much think we're getting married soon. So, you know, <laughs> which was true, but I just didn't want the secret out just yet, you know. To make the story even worse, I'd say I wouldn't tell an embarrassing part, but this is, here's an embarrassing part. Nothing to do with translating, nothing to do with the sermon, but... I was filming up against the wall, and I, had, I was just like trying to get the shot, and uh, I didn't realize that this paint on the wall was like this powdery substance, bright yellow. And so this whole time I translated for every person on the team, everybody that was sitting behind me could see, I just had bright yellow all on my black pants, and I didn't find out to the very end of the service, so that was, that was fun. Our first fight, I'm kidding. No, kind of. <laughs> Moving along. So the people, 
they began to hear the word of God and respond. And they started to respond during this time with weeping and crying because of the sins of their past and the, the present sins. And yes, there is a time for crying like we talked at the beginning of the series, but this wasn't that time. This was a time of celebration because God's word was bringing joy to their lives. So the second thing is that God's word brings joy and transforms lives. I love this moment in this passage, but it's a very complicated moment at the same time because there's so much Jewish history connected to what is happening here in this moment. Because of their history, that's one reason why there is a reason for celebration. And we see this in, in verse number 9 of the same chapter. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some of those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words had been made known to them. Now we know every time we got food at church, it's the reason for celebration. But this day was holy because it was the first day of the seventh month, and it was the start of a series of festivals on the Jewish calendar. And each one of these festivals pointed to or reminded people of very important things in their past. In Leviticus, we see several of these feasts that were, they take place over the course of the year. And, you know, you, you've heard of the Passover. The Passover would remind the people of their freedom from Egypt and would just show them how God had revealed his glory to them. The offering of the first fruits, they would celebrate the harvest that was to come. They would give thanks for what was to come. The festival of trumpets pointed to the second coming of the Messiah. Now you have to do a study to find this out, but it pointed to the second coming of the Messiah, that Jesus one day would return. And then in this passage in Nehemiah, the Feast of Tabernacles, what we see taking place here is that the people were being reminded of how the Israelites lived in huts when they wandered in the desert for 40 years. The Feast of Tabernacles was an annual reminder to the people that God is the great shepherd who had chosen the tabernacle among them to protect and to bless them wherever they wandered. It was a family affair. It was a ritual of special food. They would have different delicacies, and it definitely wasn't a time to be weeping. It was a time to give thanks and remember God's goodness. And on Wednesday, we talked about how giving thanks in our life is, is an opportunity for us to reflect who God is, to show that he's working in our life. Rabbi Jason Sobel says this. This is what they were really celebrating. In three words, he sums it up. They were celebrating God's presence, his protection, and his provision. Jesus celebrated this in, in the New Testament, and actually a lot of big moments happened during this particular time period in the Jewish calendar. But he celebrated it, and he made this statement, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And they actually had a whole thing that the priests would do. They would pull water out of the pool of Siloam. And they had this whole sequence of events that they would do based off of something they called the living water. And Jesus, in this moment, during this time of celebration, he made the statement that he was the living water. Let me just point out that I'm only giving you the tip of the iceberg. I was blown away by the connection between some of these feasts and the other celebrations. 
it is mind-blowing how they point to Jesus. It's absolutely incredible. And when he made this statement, he also made the statement that I am the light of the world, another thing that they would do that was connected to these feasts. And what was Jesus doing? He was reminding them of their past. He was reminding them of their past, revealing who he was in that moment. And he was pointing them to a future with him in eternity. And a lot of people believe, but there were some who didn't. And because of these statements, we know what happened and Jesus' enemies went after him. But in Nehemiah 8:17, it says that the people had kind of forgotten how to celebrate these festivals. They didn't stop doing it. They just weren't doing it quite right. And it says the whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. The Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. This moment in Israel's history was going to transform the nation of Israel. And later in chapter 12, you'll see that the rejoicing is so great that it can be heard from far away. In verse 18, day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. They began to repent of their sins. They began to worship God. And the word of God began to bring conviction to their lives. They couldn't just listen to the word. They had to begin to change. James chapter 1 verse 22 in the message says, don't fool yourself into thinking that you are a listener when you are anything but letting the word of God go in one ear and out the other. Act on what you hear. Those who hear and don't act are like those who glance in the mirror, walk away, and two minutes later have no idea who they are, what they look like. But whoever catches a glimpse of the revealed counsel of God, the free life, even out of a corner of his eye and sticks with it, is no distracted scatterbrain, but a man or woman of action. The person will find delight and affirmation in the action. Some of us might be a little bit of scatterbrains, but as long as we just catch a corner of it, it says, we will see God's revealed counsel. God's word reminds us of who he is, and that's one reason why we love the scriptures, because it reminds us of who he is, and we see in our readings, we will see glimpses of his character. And in Nehemiah chapter 5, I'm just going to kind of skim over this, but in chapter 5, or Nehemiah 9, verse 5, we see that, blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in it. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. So he's the creator of all, and we worship him. Verse 17 says that he's a forgiving God, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love. When his people were deserting him and doing their own thing, he did not desert them. But because of his great compassion, you did not abandon them. He forgives. He's a gracious God. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to what? To forgive and to cleanse us from all wickedness. He's abounding in love. 1 John 4, 7, dear friends, let us continue to love one another for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God for God is love. God is righteous. 1 John 3, 7, Dear children, do not let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. 
So the more you read, the more you study, the more you get to know God, the more we make it a habit of doing it. And as we continue to do this, he begins to do a work in our life that we can't imagine. But we will just begin to be drawn to the scriptures and it will begin to change our life. And the thing about this is that when we do this, you won't be able to just say, oh, I'll just read it from time to time. No, things, will, things that were in your past, bad habits, will begin to break. And new godly habits will begin to form. God's word brings faithfulness. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 37. And there's a lot in this passage, but I'm going to read it really fast here. It says, Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God to the priest." the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees, and of our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the musicians are also kept. And I want you to catch this last line. We will not neglect the house of our God. I'm going to come back to that here in just a minute. I recently purchased a book from a good friend of mine, Pastor Tony. You guys might remember him. He came and spoke here a couple years ago. And it's a book called Unstuck. And he says this about being faithful. God is not looking for the super spiritual, the super moral, or the super elite of our society. However, he is looking for a quality of character that is beyond perfection and flawless living. The character that he is looking for in every person that he uses is faithfulness. So no matter how flawed we are or how glaring our weakness says, if we remain faithful to God's call, he can use us in ways that we would never imagine. To be faithful means to have a constant unwavering commitment and duty. So how do we experience revival? It's simply by being faithful, by being committed. George Mueller once said that God delights to increase the faith of his children. We ought, instead of wanting no trials before victory, no exercise for patience, to be willing to take them from God's hands as a means. I say, and I say it deliberately, trials, obstacles, difficulties, and sometimes defeats are the very food of faith. What a statement. Faithfulness is about commitment to God. Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, says this. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. So faithfulness involves loyalty and commitment to the church. Commitment to each other in this room. It's commitment to giving to the church, however that may be. Being loyal is not neglecting the Lord's house. That's one of our values in Thrive. And when we first wrote it, it seemed kind of strange, but it's to be loyal. That's to be loyal to one another, giving to one another, living our life in a way that honors God, looking forward to the day when Jesus says, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. 
That was what the essence of the church of Acts was all about. The church that we model ourselves after. In Acts chapter 2, when all the believers were together and had everything in common, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So my final point today is this, is that God's word brings revival. Psalm 85, beginning in verse 6, says, And I'm telling you, when certain scriptures, this morning I was practicing reading the scripture, certain scriptures, I'm telling you, will move you. All the scriptures do, but when you read, God has a way of moving. And Psalm 85, 6 says this, Won't you revive us again? So your people can rejoice in you. Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I listen carefully to what God the Lord is saying, for he speaks peace to his faithful people. But let them not return to their foolish ways. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, so our land will be filled with his glory. What a powerful verse. John Lindell says that when God revives our spirit, when he draws us closer, when he draws us nearer, when he does a work in your life, when those things happen, you begin to hear God's voice clearly. And I believe this morning that for some of us, we just need a fresh perspective, maybe a slightly different mindset when it comes to this word, revival. Those of us who love the spiritual, but we can step out of these walls and go to our different places, and maybe we're agitated, we're aggravated, or things get mess us up easily, and it happens to all of us. We're wishing for revival, but then when we leave these church walls, we're, we're acting, you know, it's tough, and, and then we're always acting like revival's never here. Wanting to move a God, but letting everything around us impact us more than simply hearing from God and experiencing Him. We know who God is. We've heard His character. We've heard about His character. But we have not let the Word of God sometimes penetrate so deep into our spirit that because we don't do that, we're tossed around, like James says, like the wind and the wave. Like we let culture dictate instead of letting God and I know this is a hard thing for young people, letting culture dictate every move they make. Those of us who remember what revival was like, but never thinking that what we have is good enough right now. Like the temple that was built. Remember, they built the second temple, and there was people disappointed with that temple. Like, ah, it's not what it was in the days of Solomon. It's not what we used to have. But the problem is, there were some people with the new temple that that's all they had. That's all they knew. So we have to understand that for those of us who have witnessed some sort of revival or we're waiting for revival to come, we have to realize that some people might be in the middle of a revival right now. They might be experiencing some kind of revival right now or the beginning of it. 
And for those of us who have never experienced it, they desperately need everybody to get on the same page. And we as a church have to continue to ask God to build on what we are experiencing already. And we must never be satisfied spiritually. We must never be satisfied with our knowledge of the scripture. We need him more. And I think it's okay to remember moments from past. It's good to remember when God has moved and revival has happened in different places and we've seen incredible moves of God. That, that is awesome because we want to hear about those because it encourages our faith and it strengthens our faith. And I love hearing those stories. Habakkuk 3.2 and the message says that, God, I've heard what your ancestors say about you and I'm stopped in my tracks down on my knees. Do among us what you did among them. Work among us as you worked among them. And as you bring judgment, as you surely must, remember mercy.